Astro Sound Biters, we have a website. So the rumors are true? <laughs> well, they weren't until Alex accidentally hit the live button, but we okay. never looked back. <laughs> Call us, beep us if you want to reach us, astrosoundbites.com. So we got the .com. I was worried we would be stuck with astroaudionibbles.netsplash.us <laughs> It was actually a live bidding effort and there was a Russian hacker on the other end but uh, I, I was able to outbid him. <laughs> <laughs> Will, was the hacker actually a bear on a unicycle? Well, we do know all the Russian people are bears on unicycles but uh, let's do the episode. <laughs> Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Melena Rice. I'm a third to fourth-ish year PhD student at Yale University studying planets and their surrounding systems. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a second to third year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and their correlations with their host galaxies. And I'm Will Saunders. I am also a second to third year PhD student at Boston University, where I study planetary atmospheres, which currently leads me to studying Uranus. It is officially that point in the summer where we have no idea what year we are. Fair enough. <laughs> you are listening to episode 17, Beyond Astro Soundbites, Success and Publishing in Astronomy. This is our second Beyond episode where we discuss astronomy-related topics that are not specifically research paper results. And today we're going to be discussing the notion of success in the academic astronomy world. Now, there's a huge amount to unpack in the word success, even when it's narrowed down to the context of academic astronomy, and we're definitely not going to have time to hit everything. So today we decided to focus in on specifically the topic of publication, something that's often thought of as a form of academic currency. Now, we should probably preface this episode by saying the following. Research is incredibly hard. And the turnaround time for a publication depends on a million things that might have nothing to do with your ability as a researcher at all. So Alex, can you tell us about what a few of those things are? I can. So <laughs> Convenient. It turns out that publishing uh, is a little bit like a game. And because people are keeping track of the score, scientists have adopted various strategies for playing that game. And this brings me to my astrobite. Success in Astronomy, Some Surprising Strategies, by Stacey Kim, based on a paper by K.Z. Stanek in 2008. Now, the paper outlines some traditional metrics for success in astronomy, and that's traditionally A, how many papers you've published, and B, how well-cited those papers are. Now, we should probably mention that both of these metrics are folded into this one metric called the H-index, which is defined as the largest value for which an author has published H papers that have each been cited at least H times. So if I have 10 papers that each have 10 citations, then my H index is 10. Okay. 
But th this is getting a little complicated because there are lots of factors that play into whether your paper will be cited that really don't have anything to do with how good the research is. So the H index doesn't consider author order, right? Correct. So you can be a first author versus a tenth author, but the paper is counted the same toward your H index. Exactly. But if you were a tenth author, you may have had very little of a hand in writing the text and doing the research, but a first author would obviously have the most uh, you know, hand in it. That's true, especially for big collaborations. Yeah, so it gets complicated. Right. And there are also some really flashy topics that will probably get you a lot more citations than others. Like if you happen to be working on some really hot topic like machine learning with exoplanets or something, then it's more likely that people are going to end up citing your paper than if you're working on like a very, very niche topic that not a lot of others are actually also working on. Right. Right. No, it's completely true. Very valid points. And it's also the case that papers that appear on archive are cited twice as often as those that aren't. Really? Yeah, and in addition, those that appear on the top of the AstroPH list on archive are twice as likely to be cited than those that appear near the bottom. That's kind of just in random ordering, right? That's got nothing to do with the quality of the work. It has to do with the time that you submitted it to appear on archive. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and if you submit it even like a couple seconds after it opens PM, up for that right. day, then you're probably going to be later on the list. Yeah, I think it depends on the time zone, but right. I want to say it was like 1 or 2 Eastern. Interesting. Mm -hmm. It's been a while. <laughs> uh, yeah, it really, it kind of reminds me of how, you know, like people will plan out when to post their pictures on Instagram, like when in the week and what hour of the day to try to get the most likes. It's really similar to that. Definitely, because <laughs> at the end of the day, Citation counts are essentially a popularity contest, right? And I will say, if you, you brought up social media, the nice thing about, say, Twitter, for example, is that it breaks up long passages into, for example, a thread, which is a series of bite-sized posts so that no one post feels particularly overwhelming to read. And in cognitive psychology, this is called chunking. And it's the same reason the numbers on your credit card are separated into groups of four. Oh, okay. That that makes sense. But I really hadn't considered Twitter as a hotbed for cognitive psychology research. <laughs> yeah, that might end up being a rabbit hole. <laughs> but in this case, the authors of this paper wanted to see if the same could be applied to publishing. Namely, could breaking a big paper up into multiple smaller papers increase your citation rate? Interesting. So to answer this question, they considered papers that were published between 2000 and 2004 so that they had enough time to rack up a few citations by the time the paper was published in 2008. And they looked for papers published in the top astronomical journals, and those, they say, are Astronomy and Astrophysics, Astronomical Journal, Astrophysical Journal, and Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. So what does the distribution of paper link look like? I mean, I would guess maybe there are mostly medium length papers like eight to ten pages i would guess yeah so there's a peak at around four pages and that's because for letters that's the maximum length that you could have a letter and those are considered oh. short high impact results oh. but if you don't consider that peak then the overall peak of the distribution is at around six pages huh but it's huh. worth noting that this is a leftward skew so the median depending on the journal is generally around eight to eleven Oh, I see. 
So basically, I was right. I could have guessed any number and called it right. <laughs> any, any number between three and 12, and I would have given it to you. So Alex, give us the punchline. How often are those papers being cited? Right, so the punchline is that if you plot the number of pages versus the number of citations for each paper in the sample, you see a roughly monotonic increase in citation count as the number of pages increases. But I will say there's a widespread to this data. So it's not to say that that'll be the case strictly for every paper you pick from the sample. Huh. Did they attempt to fit that distribution to any sort of, of curve? They didn't, no. So they don't have like a, huh. uh, what do you call it, a chi-square value or a um, one of those tests, a goodness of fit test? Because if it's, if it's highly, if it's correlated but highly variable, then it might not be a, a very significant finding. Right. So they just present the data after binning within at least the description in the astro byte. Okay. I'm not sure if they do any additional fitting in the paper itself. So you're saying that we shouldn't break down our papers into smaller papers then? And all of our papers should be like super long summaries of the entire state of the field? Yeah, like a thousand page papers <laughs> starting to come out. Uh, not exactly. So I will note that, as I'm sure you all know, correlation does not imply causation, right? So something that I've been told repeatedly is that when thinking about publishing, you should always have something to say. So the authors of this paper suggest that the longer papers probably had more to say or covered more ground, mm -hmm. which that emphasis more directly contributed to their citation count than just the number of pages itself. So if you're thinking about tacking on unnecessary pages to your research papers, that might not be the best way to go about it. Just add really big figures to the appendix. <laughs> yeah, spanning 10 pages each. Like one of those charts that, that you have to include every data point in every plot. And instead of just saying it's available online, you just print that whole thing at the end. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because I think like if you did have a result that you managed to break down into multiple papers, like you publish each stage individually and people wanted to cite your result, they might end up citing all three. So each individual mm. paper would have maybe fewer citations, but in total it might sum to more. So I'm still like not totally clear on what strategy makes the most sense. I mean, I would just, I would honestly probably just try to put it all in one paper because that's what I would prefer as a reader. But I don't know, like strategically, what would make the most sense if you consider that. And I that would probably be something really hard to study because you can't, have a control where you say, oh, what would happen if I published a 16-page paper versus four four-page papers? Because you can't publish both. That's also a great point. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's also discussed in the paper that this goal might evolve as you advance in your career. So for grad students, it's generally seen to be a good thing to have as many first author papers as possible. And the emphasis is less so on your H index or citation count. Whereas those things might become more important as you get to a step like tenure review. So at that point, it might be useful to write your thousand page treatises. Although, <laughs> uh, although I should also mention that this monotonically increasing trend broke for papers of around 100 pages, which had even fewer citations than you might have predicted given that trend. So don't make your papers too long. And monotonic trend implies that it increases, but it could be real diminishing returns. Going from 20 to 30 pages might hardly increase the number of citations, but delay your paper's publication by months, which would probably be to your detriment. 
Right. And again, there's a widespread to the data. So that's not to say publishing a a 90-page paper is going to be the sweet spot. Sure. But it does make me wonder, what was the longest paper ever written? So I looked into this and I could not find a good uh, resource on this. But I could find one on what the shortest paper ever written was. Oh, can I guess? Sure. Um, it's probably something really significant, like a like a major laboratory finding on like uh, like the atomic states of oxygen or something that just got published as like a few numbers in a paper or something. That's a very specific guess. <laughs> I feel like you're going to be disappointed oh. <laughs> because the shortest research paper that I could find has been attributed to Dennis Upper who is a clinical psychologist and submitted a paper in 1974 called The Unsuccessful Self-Treatment of a Case of Writer's Block. This paper was entirely blank. It did not have an abstract. It did not (laughs) have any subject matter. And it was published. And the referee report said the following. I have studied this manuscript very carefully with lemon juice and x-rays and have not detected a single flaw in either design or writing style. I suggest it be published without revision. Clearly, it is the most concise manuscript I have ever seen, yet it contains sufficient detail to allow other investigators to replicate Dr. Upper's failure. Oh my god. In comparison with other with the other manuscripts I get from you, containing all that complicated detail, this one was a pleasure to examine. Surely we can find a place for this paper in the journal, perhaps on the edge of a blank page. <laughs> That's awesome. And I will say that paper has been cited 82 times. Wow. That's awesome. That's incredible. So there's another paper that somebody wrote in follow-up, The Unsuccessful Self-Treatment of a Case of Writer's Block, colon, a replication (laughs) that was entirely blank. (laughs) You know, what's funny is that I, I wanted to verify that this was actually blank and I looked into it. And it turns out if you're not affiliated with the university, this journal will charge you $38 to read the full text. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. And it's a completely blank paper. That's a great answer. That way beats my answer. (laughs) That's amazing. We should re-replicate that. That's true. There's value in replication of scientific (laughs) results. (laughs) What if we can't, though? (laughs) That's true. If you write anything, you fail. I might write something. All right, Malena, we've talked enough about uh, my paper lengths. Why don't we move on to your astrobite? Well, the astrobite that I'll be covering discusses a paper that is kind of related, but it's a little bit more about citation counts specifically as related to gender. And so it's discussing some of the drawbacks of the publication process because it has some intrinsic biases to it. Mm. So specifically, the astrobite is called Gender Bias in Astronomical Publications. It was written by Kelly Malone, and it's about a paper by Kapler et al. 2016. There's no question that there are fewer women working in the physical sciences than men, and even fewer non-binary scientists. So we already know that it's not an even playing field in terms of representation. So what you're saying sounds to me like kind of a one-two punch, because not only is there uneven representation to begin with, but the representation that is within the field doesn't even get balanced representation within citation counts. Exactly. Wow, you should just give my one sentence <laughs> <away> right now. <laughs> that was perfect. Yeah, so that's that's exactly what the paper is talking about. Uh, the authors were looking at astronomy papers that were published from 1950 to 2015. 
um, including about 200,000 papers in their sample that were published across five big astronomy journals. So three that Alex mentioned already, plus science and nature. Is that nature astronomy or nature itself or all of the nature umbrella of papers? I think it's nature itself. Uh, I believe nature astronomy is a really new journal. Oh, okay. Um, but I, yeah, I, th I think that's right. Sounds plausible. Yeah, so they were looking at all these different papers and trying to figure out the distribution of citations by gender, which, as you might imagine, is kind of a challenging task because it's a lot of papers to sift through. Uh, so what they did was they determined the gender and the seniority of each author, where they defined seniority as the number of years since that author's first publication. And they managed to determine this for about 70% of the data set, and they just removed everything else and ran their analysis on this to try to figure out what biases are present within that data set. How did they determine the gender of the authors? Is that released in some sort of data set or did they have to kind of guess based on the name? Yeah, there are Python data sets um, associated with this, which, you know, in themselves have their own intrinsic biases. But there was a Python database that they used that included 40,000 names from around the world that have been classified by gender by native speakers from the country where that name is common. And so the authors ended up finding that papers authored by a male tended to receive more citations than papers authored by a female, uh, which used to be actually a really dramatic ratio, around a factor of 1.5 to 2 in the 1960s. Uh, and it's slowly hmm. decreased over time, but it's been pretty steady since around 1990. So from 1990 to present male first author papers generally receive about 6% more citations than female first author papers. And the fraction of papers with a female first author has only increased from 5% to 25% over that span of 65 years. Wow, that's, that's kind of stark. Uh, but it is a really yeah. impressive research effort to compile such data historically. That's, that's pretty rare that you see data going back that far. Uh, were they evenly weighted each paper or did they have some mechanism for weighting them yeah so this finding in itself isn't entirely conclusive because there are some confounding factors like you were saying um you need to consider like the lengths of the papers so they right. found that women tend to publish longer papers but they publish less often and so that sort of introduces a bias and women also on average joined the field at a later age than men so that means that they typically have less, a woman at a certain age typically would have less seniority by this definition than a man at that age. Any guess as to why women typically join the field later? Yeah, I was wondering this. I mean, I'm guessing like women, I don't think typically went into higher education and science as often, especially in like the 1960s and right. 70s. And so maybe hmm. as it became more acceptable... Yeah, but I don't know why that would correlate with age. I'm wondering if it has to do with, like, having kids. Maybe if you had kids young, if you had kids in your early yeah. 20s, then you could go back to school after that. I don't know. My right. other hmm. thinking was that maybe grad schools didn't admit women directly from undergrad and they had to work and in a lab setting before they could kind of get a PhD. Hmm. But I don't have anything to substantiate that. It's kind of just a hunch. Right, right. 
Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, the most traditional path would be to just go straight from undergrad into grad school, and I could see that maybe there would be more barriers for women to follow that very traditional path than for men, and so um, it seems like maybe that could be a factor for why they end up having less seniority entering later, just because, like, other things come up in life more often that sort of prevent that traditional path. Mm -hmm. But that would just be a guess. In any case, it's pretty disheartening that these trends seem so obvious in the data. It makes it pretty clear that these biases affect publishing results. Melina, how did they take the confounding factors that you mentioned earlier into account, or did they? Yeah, the authors used a random forest algorithm, which is a type of machine learning algorithm, to predict the number of citations of a given paper. Um, So they trained it on the data set of papers that were first authored by a male, and they tested it to make sure that it was predicting the correct number of citations for a given paper for men, and then they applied it to a data set of papers that were published by women. So they took the same algorithm and just applied it to papers that were not authored by men. And they found that the papers authored by women systematically received 10% fewer citations than their algorithm predicted that they should. So, <laughs> I mean, that's that's also pretty stark. Uh, so even when you take into account these confounding factors, it seems like this is a pretty real trend that exists in the field. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, but this is such a great physics-astronomy approach to a social issue, to deploy a machine learning algorithm to, <laughs> to sift out what sort of a, a confounding environmental factors would make the, the gender gap exists. So they're really, this distills it down. The effect of the bias you're saying is 10% fewer citations for women than men. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything else that could explain this that might not have been captured in the research? Is it possible that men self-cite more than women do? The authors also explored that, and they found that without considering confounding effects, overall men self-cite less than women. So even though the women are self-citing more, they still don't get cited as much overall, which is pretty, pretty sad. And when you take the random forest approach again and consider all the confounding factors, then that citation rate is pretty similar for men and women. So it's, it's definitely not based on this analysis that men cite themselves more. It's more that on average, all astronomers cite women less than men, which is really... We have work to do. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It it kind of reminds me of a, not a research paper, but an article I read recently talking about how women-led research teams have been publishing less than their male counterparts have, uh, as noted by the deputy editor for the British Journal for the Philosophy of Science. Uh, which I think is interesting. And I mean, putting aside that we really shouldn't be prioritizing productivity during a global pandemic that has killed many, many people, I think there's probably some influence based on the fact that there are still these antiquated expectations in place that when everybody's at home, it's the mother that should be the homemaker cooking and cleaning and raising the children and doing all these things that now have to take place at the same time as when people are trying to get their research done. Right. It reminds me of something I read that when there are external societal pressures. It tends to exacerbate things like gender gaps and also disproportionately affects minority groups. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There has been a lot going on in general that has really 
I'm sure negatively impacted minority groups' ability to get work done. And again, like Alex said, I don't think that that's really the priority right now, but it is notable that, you know, certain groups are publishing less right now than others, so it's not really a fair comparison to say, like, we'll just use this as a universal metric that will judge everyone equally. Since this has been mostly anecdotal, we don't have a ton of numbers, I dug up an interesting New York Times article that summarized a morning consult poll from April. And what they found is that among couples who are now in charge of kind of helping their children learn from home during COVID, about half of the men say that they do more of the work, and about half of the men surveyed said their spouse does more of the work helping the kids at home. Among the women surveyed, 3% said that their spouse does more of the work than they do. <laughs> so there's a gender gap, and there's a gender gap in awareness of the gender gap during COVID. That's how bad it is. Yeah, geez. So first of all, I, I wonder if the people doing this study kind of had an idea for what the outcome would be before they did a survey of these people. But what you're telling us, Will, is that basically men are just way out of touch with the reality of the situation. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's true. And this trend holds up with other things. Any sort of work around the house has a similar trend, not quite as stark as the helping with homeschooling kids. But the article attributed some of this to workplace expectations of men working from home, that, that they are always have to be available and that the women have more flexibility. And that just comes down to stereotypes. Where do these expectations come from? Well, I guess it would be the employer. In the survey, three-quarters of men said their employer expects more of them or the same amount during quarantine. Only two-thirds of women said that. That's still a large proportion. That's not a huge difference. But I guess maybe it, it, it just comes from the employer. Wow. So that's also probably a manifestation of the gender gap issue we've been talking about. Employers expecting less from women than for men means that the women then feel more pressure to do the things around the house instead of this traditional office-type work. It also, I think, shows how gender discrimination adversely affects everyone. Because imagine being a father in quarantine and getting pressured by your boss not to spend more time with your child than you would have otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to keep in mind that, you know, even though it's really comforting to think that we live in a perfect meritocracy, we really don't. And there are just very different expectations for people from various different demographics, you know, gender, race everything really that makes a person i guess identifiable from other people mm, and right. so it's important to consider that all of these play directly into the standards that people are held to and also like the different stressors that go on in their everyday lives there has been this really great Astrobite series that was published quite recently, the Hashtag Black and Astro series. And this past week, right before recording, has been Black and Astro Week, which is this amazing movement that was founded by Ashley Walker. Who we interviewed for our last episode. Yes, who we interviewed. Uh, I've been sort of following this, and there was this really especially powerful statement, I thought, from Keyshawn Ivory, where he was talking about his experiences in the field, and he stated, quote, To think that the color of my skin would not affect how I navigate life in this country every second of every day is simply a historical. And then later in the same piece, he says, again, quote, 
I would be an even better astrophysicist if I could rest assured that people in the fields, professors especially, were not forming opinions of me and formed by racial stereotypes before I even opened my mouth to introduce myself. I would be an even better astrophysicist if this combination of factors didn't make me feel like I have to scream twice as loud as everyone else to get one word in edgewise. I would be an even better astrophysicist if I were not constantly distracted by alerts that someone else black was murdered by an individual charged with the responsibility to protect our communities in theory, but never in practice. I would be an even better astrophysicist if I weren't constantly wondering what interaction with a cop might make me the next one in that series. So this was a really, really powerful piece. I found it very moving. And this is just like a small snippet from his entire very eloquent description of his experiences. And I think it really highlights, I mean, experiences that I personally couldn't even begin to understand. And I think it's important to recognize that, you know, there are a lot of experiences that we are not going to be able to empathize with per se, but we can try to sympathize and try to recognize that just because we haven't had an experience doesn't mean other people aren't. Definitely, yeah. And and hearing that piece from Keyshawn, uh, just, it's frustrating that there's still so much emphasis on H-Index and publishing, knowing that there's so many factors that adversely affect certain groups of people, like women and people of color within astronomy. Yeah, this was a really moving piece. And uh, you should check out all of the pieces published for Black and Astro Week because a lot of them were personal stories like this. And the research has shown that when somebody hears a personal story, not just statistics, not just discussion, but someone telling the story in their own eyes, it, it connects with you in a really meaningful way. And this was, this was brave of him to, to kind of bear his soul out there for us all to, to see. And it, it helps me you know, recognize some of the work that needs to be done. Right. Thank you, Keyshawn. If you yeah, thanks very this. much, Keyshawn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone take a deep breath, <laughs> decompress a little, because it's time for the bi-weekly space sound of the Fortnite for, for science. science. For, for science. science. <laughs> Amazing. All right, you all ready for it? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. All right, here we go. All right. You all heard it? Yeah, it sounds like my electric tea kettle when it just starts to get to a boil. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Melina? <laughs> it's the sound of existential dread rolling in. <laughs> <laughs> the, the low rumble of existential dread. I'd recognize it anyway. <laughs> I don't know that I have a real guess. <laughs> all right, then I'll tell you. This sound was... Uh, Martian wind, as captured by the sensors on NASA's InSight probe. Wow. Very cool. Yeah, so the wind vibrated the sensors along its solar panels, and those vibrations were then picked up uh, and shifted upward in pitch, and then that translated to the sound that you heard. That's a great sound. Nice find. It's very cool, right? Yeah, so that's Martian wind. Is Mars windy? I don't know very much about the atmosphere of Mars. Yeah, it is. Like, windier than Earth? Uh, no, I don't think windier than Earth. Because, well, no, I, I don't think so. Every atmosphere has a lot of wind at some high altitude. On the ground, 
I don't think there's a ton of wind, but there is enough to create global dust storms on kind of a regular cycle on Mars. And so then things get really windy. But Mars also has an atmosphere about a thousandth that of Earth, so even the strongest winds couldn't blow you over. Huh. That's pretty cool. You wouldn't you wouldn't be able to fly, for example, like you might be <laughs> yeah. able to on Titan. Yeah. No chance. <laughs> okay. Still very interesting though. It's very great sound. And I'm glad we had our local Mars expert here to explain it to us. <laughs> All right, well, I want to hear about some astrobytes from you. Okay, so today I'm talking about the astrobyte called What Does Success Mean to You? This was written by Caitlin Doty, and it's about a paper called Choose Your Own Adventure, Developing a <laughs> Values-Oriented Framework for Your Career. This was written by Lucianne Walkovich. And it's available on Archive, but it's not a published paper. It's more of like a, a kind of a summary of a talk that she gave. Now, this astrobite and the paper are dense. We do not have time to unpack all of this. And we may end up coming back to some of these points in some future episodes. Yeah, like we said at the beginning, the idea of success is very nuanced, very complicated. So hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about it more in the future as well. Of course. As we've mentioned, the kind of classic definition of success in astronomy is publications and citations, H-index. That is the stupid phrase, publish or perish. But we all know that our personal definitions of success add up to much more than that. Of course, right? If the only goal were to publish, then no astronomers would ever get married, have kids, do any outreach, advise undergrads, things like that. Exactly. So Lucienne in the paper prefers the word fulfillment to success because she thinks that that kind of captures the idea a little further. Here's a, a quick passage from it. My argument is that fulfillment stems from aligning your career path with your personal values and that a great deal of unhappiness comes from a mismatch in the way you are evaluated versus the way you see yourself generating value in the world. Hmm. Even that sentence in itself is... Like, I think I would need to sit and just ruminate on that for a while. <laughs> yeah, the whole essay's like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, it's already a lot to navigate grad school and potential career paths, but it's so important to make sure that we don't lose ourselves along the way, you know? Right. And I think her point in this essay is they go hand in hand. You're going to be less likely to lose yourself and more likely to be successful if you kind of take some baby steps in developing this values-oriented framework, as she calls it. But there are some concrete steps if you have no idea what any of this means and you don't really know how to get started. The first step is to make a mission statement for yourself. Make a mission statement for yourself is maybe not my ideal Saturday morning activity. <laughs> but if she says it's valuable, then maybe I'll buy into it. How, how would you distill your ambitions and values into just a couple of sentences, though? So here's an example of maybe a few questions you could use for self-reflection, help you generate some ideas. You could start with someone you admire and ask, why do I admire them? What about this person makes me respect their work, makes me respect their values, and so on? Another question is, what is my purpose? Uh, that's a vague question, but it doesn't have to be answered vague. It can be answered concretely. My purpose is to help others. And, you know, if that's where you get started, that's fine. You don't need all the answers. You just start with something. And another good one that she suggested is, um, when I do something that feels like an accomplishment, why does it feel that way to me? And why does something that not feel like an accomplishment feel a different way? Hmm. Hmm. 
That's so interesting. Like, sometimes I'll do an entire day or week of work and it just feels so defeating. And other days, you know, just an hour or two of work, I'll feel, like, very tired but, like, very proud. And it, it just, like, research feels so nonlinear because of that. Absolutely. I can relate to that. Even non-research things feel a similar way, like doing this podcast. I always feel good tired after this, not like dead tired. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> so when you kind of have this idea of what your values are in this mission statement, the next thing is you have to consider what your aptitudes are because you want to align your abilities and your interests. So you can kind of ask this question, which I think is a tough one, but one she suggests is, what do I want to be known for? And that, that's a little tough because I think it puts it in, in, in the sphere of what other people think of you. But it doesn't have to all be about that. It's just a guide to help you kind of get this mission statement rolling. And then you can tweak it as you go. And then after you've drafted your mission statement, presumably the next step is to achieve everlasting success and a Nobel Prize, right? Yep, just like that. <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> just ask anyone. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I can definitely see how, like, taking the time to actually reflect on why you're doing what you're doing and, like, why you want to reach a certain definition of success is really valuable. And so I'm wondering, does Lucienne have advice for what to do with your mission statement after you've done that reflection? Are you sort of continuing to look back at it? Are you active about using it in some way? Great question. Uh, to preface this, I would say the mission statement is supposed to evolve as you evolve. So you're not dead set into whatever you decide you know, at this age. In a few years, it's going to adapt and your life goals are going to change. But the idea is you make conscious choices in the context of the mission statement. So, for instance, if I had a mission statement last summer when Alex first approached me about starting a podcast, I would have thought to myself, how well does the podcast fit into my mission and values? Is it, is it new and exciting? What about that do I like? How much time will it take? Do I have the time to devote to it? And how long will I remain committed to this? I don't want to burn out. And then what am I willing to sacrifice? Am I willing to give up time I would otherwise spend on other outreach activities to do this one? Well, don't keep us in suspense. Did you, did you start the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Another question that I have is... No answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Left as an exercise to the reader, to the listener. <laughs> Another question that I have is, if we're not going to use citations or a number of publications as our primary metrics for success then, or at least not as the sole measure, then what should we use? Because, for example, I can't just say, oh, well, I did three papers worth of outreach this year. I mean, what, what do you, how do you quantify that? Yeah, that's a tough one. You can't say that to like a, a committee considering you for tenure, but if maybe a, a different job is looking for a different metric. So she gave an example, uh, Lucienne, from her own life. And one of those was the number of people that come to her for advice. Started off, nobody you know, would come to her for advice. And at some point after advising enough people and being out in the workplace, then she would get you know, students who ne don't know her sending emails or, or colleagues and so on. You could say it, you know, a different metric, like the number of students you mentored, the number of audience members you reach with, say, a podcast, and, and so <laughs> on. But, you, you know, you can find objective measures in other areas besides publication. Hmm. Right. 
Yeah, it is definitely difficult to figure out like a way to directly compare different aspects of your life that you find valuable, but if you find something valuable, then it's worth making space for it. And ideally, it won't take away space from other things because, you know, you can't just work on papers 24-7. You'll just burn out and not be able to do anything else anyways. But I want to do other things, you know, too, right? And I think a lot of grad students have this desire. I mean, not just grad students. I think anyone in astronomy, be it academia or somewhere else, has a desire to do more than just kind of uh, research, publish, research, publish. Right. But how right. much do you do? Is it is it worth it to you? And that's where the mission statement kind of helps you decide. Right. Yeah, I think everyone has to find the balance that works for them. That's why it's so valuable to access outside resources and decide for yourself where you want to dedicate your efforts. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well... Uh, I guess it's a good time for our one-sentence summaries, but that doesn't even feel quite right because this is a Beyond episode. So maybe instead we'll end by each stating if this episode has changed your thinking about success, and if so, in what way. So does anyone want to start? Oh boy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right, sure, I'll I'll jump into it. When I first read about the idea of writing a mission statement for myself, I thought that was kind of silly. Um, I might actually do it now. I I think I should sit down and do it, even if I don't love it or use it. It might be a valuable exercise, but I I think it is a good idea to have a working definition of success. Working that is because it's, it's good for now and it's going to continue to change. And then it helps me align today's goals with the future goals as they both start to grow and change. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, personally, maybe because it's been instilled in me for so long that publishing is like the pinnacle of research success that like, I still prioritize it pretty highly. Like I, I have never published a first author paper, and I would very much like to. Um, Having said that, I think it's just a really nice reminder to continually come back to the idea that like, the pressure to publish will always be there. Mm. Like it, it is never going away if you stay in academia at any point in your career. So sitting with that pressure and knowing that regardless of the pressure, you have to find the balance that works right for you and to invest your time in the other things that you value regardless of what the pressure is. uh, I think it's just nice to be reminded of that. Yeah, something that has been sort of repeated to me throughout grad school and even before grad school, um, fortunately, is that Grad school is a marathon and not a race, and you can't really treat it as a race because you will burn out. And I mean, publications are great, but like when you publish a paper, you feel really awesome about it for like a day or a week, and you're like in this great celebratory mode. But if that's the only thing that you value, then all of a sudden, after you've published, then you have this overwhelming panic of like, now I have to do it again, and mm. that just keeps going. And you're not going to publish every day. It's just not going to happen ever. Like, it doesn't matter how good a researcher you are. Unless you're publishing blank papers, that is. That's true. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Unless you're publishing about writer's block every day. (laughs) Pretty good citation rate. (laughs) Yeah, in which case I could potentially do that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I mean, you really need to have other things that sustain you that aren't just like publishing and these very fleeting moments of success. And so 
it's really important to make sure that you're prioritizing yourself and, you know, if you have to write in your schedule, like, this is my free time, I will not work during this time, like, something to just create some boundaries for yourself. And I know that's really hard right now because coronavirus and, like, I have nowhere to work except for my bed and my kitchen, so I have no boundaries. Mm. <laughs> but, right, right. you know, I mean, there are other ways that you can try to at least, like, bound your time. And so, yeah, I guess that's sort of, like, my takeaway. And I also really like the idea of a mission statement and I think that's something that I'd probably want to do for myself. It kind of reminds me of like New Year's resolutions but a little bit more global to your ideals as opposed to just like what you want to do for one year. It's more like broadly what do I value which I think is something really valuable to reflect on. I always hear about how valuable writing is for processing your emotions and for deciding your your trajectory but it's just good to be reminded of that. Absolutely. Well, I think we're probably at a good point to wrap up. We've sort of had a lot of discussion throughout this episode, so we'll leave our philosophizing to a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that concludes episode 17, Beyond Astro Soundbites, Success and Publishing in Astronomy. And if you want to read the three astrobites plus the one that I mentioned a quote from, so four... Uh, that we talked about today, or the other links that we mentioned, then check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to hear more of our extraordinary episodes, then check them all out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. And our website! And our website! AstroSoundBites.com Astro Audio Nibbles (laughs) 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 Thanks... well thank you for listening and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos